Hi, welcome to More to Come, Publishers Weekly's weekly podcast of comics and graphic novel news, recorded here at the Publishers Weekly offices in New York, New York. Uh, my name is Heidi McDonald. I am the graphic novels review editor for Publishers Weekly, as well as the uh, co-editor of PW Comics World and the editor-in-chief of The Beat at comicsbeat.com. Check us out on Twitter at, at PW Comics World, as well as on Facebook at PW Comics World. And I'm Kate Fitzsimmons. I'm the podcast producer. Calvin Reed will not be here with us this week because he is enjoying the joys of vacation. Ah. Missing out on the wonders of making a podcast. Yes. And you can check us out on Tumblr at pwcomicsworld.tumblr.com. Yes. But, well, you know, we can leave some silence gaps where Calvin might have put in his insightful thoughts. But, um, you know, just Kate and I. But we've done it before, Kate. I'm not, we've done it before. I'm not too worried about it. So, uh, you know, we should get a little photo of us in the buddy back pose or something. But, um Anyway, yes, this week on More to Come, we have DC's continuing evolution. Um, Valiant gets a huge cash infusion from China. The Mahu Shonen Breakfast Club controversy. What's going on in Japan's manga industry and comics by the numbers with Bookscan, a kids and reading, and of course, news briefs. Uh, how was that Calvin imitation, by the way? Um, not very Calvin-y, but worked <laughs> just great. <laughs> All right. Anyway, okay. Oh, now that was Calvin. There we go. You've sent my levels here on this recorder into the red. All right. Well, I'll try to talk in a more NPR type way. Um, yeah, DC changes. Um, they are changing. They are moving. They are moving. They are going west coast. They are going health food on us, I guess. They're learning how to drive. Um, <laughs> Anyway, uh, DC held a creator summit a couple weeks ago and uh, held also a big press conference where I guess they are now just now uh, releasing some of that to the rest of the press who wasn't there. And uh, a lot of things are happening. For instance, they're going to do eight-page previews of their new-look titles in May. Um, Batman is getting a new look. So far, we've only seen him from the back, but he looks like he has uh, radio ears or something like that. Um, and, uh, you know, diverse diversions for the diversity, the diversity. And also a bunch of editorial changes there. Uh, they're beginning to release some of the names of the people who are being hired to take over, including Andy Corey, formerly of Comics Alliance, and Rebecca Taylor, formerly of Archaea. And I hear a bunch of other names are on their way as well. So a lot more to come there. So, Kate, what, what do you think? Well, You're the dedicated DC reader here. The thing that's got me a little worried is how in some of these interviews with Dan Didio, where a lot of this information has come out, Dan is very enthusiastic about the participation of Grant Morrison. Mm-hmm. Now, <laughs> I love Grant Morrison when he writes his own comics, but when Grant Morrison decides that he wants to be an architect of the DC Universe, the results can be mixed. Yeah, you're not a, a Grant Morrison. Are you not a fan of uh, multiversity? Uh, uh, I, his I, let me do Red Sun and Watchmen and everything else all at once. I, I think it's um, <clears throat> he's very impressed with himself, is what I think. <laughs> uh, and it's all very well in in multiversity, but I feel like nobody else does Grant Morrison like Grant Morrison. And so when you 
use him to universe build, it's not as well suited to writers who are not Grant Morrison. Right, that's right. Um, yeah, but I mean, there's a lot of other faces involved in the in the revamp or the relaunch or the, the I, I, new... Yes. I guess I was just burned by his Superman take, and <laughs> I have yet to forgive him. You're right, right. Well, uh, you know, Gene Luen Yang, a much-revered figure here on, on More to Come, is going to be actually writing Superman. What, For which I am grateful. Yes. So, um, you know, I mean, this is all still in motion. Uh, one of the most interesting things that uh, I noticed was that actually uh, Jim Lee uh, also said something that to me bordered on apostasy, where he said that, that uh, you know, a lot of DC readers of the past were very obsessed with small notes of continuity, and maybe that wasn't the, uh, the guiding principle behind making these books <laughs> anymore, which is, I'm sure... Many people clutch their pearls. Well, it depends on what they consider to be small notes of continuity. That's it's a, devil's in the details. Yes, like if it's if by detail you mean what happened in issue three, then I agree. Like who cares? But if by details you mean certain characters existing or not, well then okay, maybe my feelings are a little stronger. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I think they were talking more picayune, little picky things. Ah, uh, like about buckles or and, whether Wonder Woman wears pants. I, I could not really even care that less. kind of thing. It was it was more the little uh, niggling details. I, I can't. I'm looking for the exact quote right now. It's it's not coming right up. But um, yeah, he was definitely not not totally in favor. Of that, and you know, Dan DiDio was also coming out and saying that uh, they had been too event focused, and now oh, they're going to focus on characters, yes, which please. is also like, uh, you know, what company is this again? Because that's been their driving force for ever since the new Fifty Two came out. Well, but I mean, it's been their driving source force ever since the new Fifty Two came out. I mean, it may be that even DC tires of it after a while, mm-hmm. or you know, they've started to realize that they're purchasing base has tired of it and that maybe they need a little time especially since they've had one event that changed everything and now they're going to have another event that changes everything they may realize that they need to go into rebuild mode (laughs) and you know just put in some building blocks there for a few years before they can change everything again right well it it, the, the the one word that i keep hearing about the new uh the new dc is batgirl because apparently at this Summit. It was Batgirl this, Batgirl that. And Batgirl is, of course, a new take on the character. A kind of an updated take on the character uh, with the new shoes and a new creative team. And that's a lot not as tied into this whole angsty, teeth-gritting, dark world event kind of stuff. And um, so apparently that's the way we're going. And if you look at the people that they're hiring, they seem to be a lot more towards that kind of thing. So, Well, I think DC will never be short of angsty teeth grittingness <laughs> i mean they it, it, you know they've got the bat universe and they're certainly not going back to the silver age so you know to to throw in a few lighter voices in there mm. is entirely welcome right here's the quote from ghibli we're asking the creators to put story and character first and really focus on canon more than continuity continuity is this is where the character was today and this is where he is tomorrow those are things that i think sometimes the readership gets too concerned about and it starts overshadowing what we're in the business of doing which is telling stories so anyway well i mean there was definitely for example uh the 90s in say marvel was an era which was very focused on on continuity and Mm -hmm. all these little things 
and you know it got to the point where you had like 12 characters in one book and they were all you know having footnotes to what book they were in last and you know that definitely can be a destructive direction for comics Mm -hmm. there's no question right um so if it's as good as they're making it sound I'm all for it. Right, right. I, I think on, uh, the, the, the interviews that I've wa- read, I mean, I know Scott Snyder is very enthusiastic about what he's doing as Batman, and, you know, certainly Gene Yang is one of the elite creators working today, so... Woo, Scott Snyder, woo. Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know what? As we like to say, I do believe there is more to come. There's definitely, I definitely more, more to come. come. Now, you know, speaking of grim and gritty, uh, Kevin Sujihara, the head of Warner Brothers Studios came out at an investors conference the other day and said that there's a big difference between Marvel and DC movies because DC's movies are superhero movies are way more grounded in reality and um <laughs> um um okay I'm just gonna say this right here I've watched those movies and I don't know what reality the hell he's talking about well you know about. Pat the Dark Knight Returns trilogy was very much about things it's, it, it's it's about uh, emotional realities. It's true, mm-hmm. but um, it's about as realistic as a Saturday morning cartoon <laughs> as far as what the human body or indeed gravity is capable of. So for him to be, it's all grounded in reality is kind of, um, maybe that's not the word you were looking right. for, sir? Well, you know, uh, I think what he might have been trying to get at is that obviously Marvel is insanely successful, but uh, maybe the movie going public might be ready for some different flavors. And speaking of different flavors, uh, there could be a huge new flavor in the form of Valiant Studios because mm. they have signed up with a Chinese uh, movie company uh, whose initials I don't have in front of me, once again. Uh, for a what is billed as a nine-figure deal. In other words, uh, this movie studio is investing nine figures, which at the very least would be $100 million, $100 million, uh, to make some valiant movies about XO Man of War and Bloodshot and uh, Archer and Armstrong. So, um, you know... uh, Listen, Valiant has been incredibly successful at getting funding. <laughs> yeah. I, I really like those guys and, and so do other people who have money. So Yeah, well, I mean, okay, it, it's at this point that my brain is going tulip bubble, tulip <laughs> bubble, tulip <laughs> bubble. Um, like, I, I love superheroes. I love superhero movies. I certainly like indie takes on everything, but I just... I'm just a little astonished that anyone thinks they can make back at least $100 million on movies about valiant properties. Right. Well, uh, you know, one thing about this is that a lot of studios, there's a lot of foreign investment money out there in the uh, movies, and uh, there's a huge film audience in Asia. Uh, yes, there and, is. And, uh, you know, if they want to get in on it, uh, they can't because Marvel and Warner Brothers, Disney and Warner Brothers uh, own it all. Although I believe Iron Man 2 was a, had, some, had some Chinese money in it before Marvel was uh, purchased by Disney. But anyway, so if you are a big Chinese movie company and you want to get involved in this superhero thing that all the kids are talking about, you've got to go in with someone who is in Marvel or DC. So Valiant is a perhaps attractive option there. Well, but the thing is, given the lack of name recognition of Valiant characters with uh, the movie-going audience, would it not be financially smarter to just make up your own superheroes? Uh, well, that 
hasn't been proven. But you know what? I'll tell you something. And I like everyone at Valiant a lot. You know, Warren Simons, the editor-in-chief, is a, is a pal. We love talking about the Mets together. I mean, all their editors are great people. Oh, yeah. I love everybody there. Uh, you know, their whole staff, their whole business. Uh, Dinesh Shamanzani, such a great guy. Uh, had dinner with those guys, advertisers on the beat. So, uh, you know, my lanceman. And that said... Here's what I'm going to say. You probably, if you were doing a venture of this kind, might want to get your comics characters established a little bit before trying to launch a movie. Because uh, there's been, it's been an uphill struggle for Valiant. Something yeah. about their take, something about their approach hasn't quite caught on as quickly as it could. Let's put it that way. And I think that uh, some of the newer material that they've just launched, starting with The Valiant, which is absolutely one of the best-looking comics of the year because it was drawn by Paolo Rivera, I think that's gotten a little bit more traction. But, um, you know, I love these guys. If anybody deserves a nine-figure Chinese investment, they do. Uh, But, you know, I think, uh, you know, they just had a retreat. I'm sure this was all discussed there. But probably getting the American comics reading public a little bit more on board with their properties is a a healthy goal for them. Yeah. I mean, I think, let's put it this way. I think the strongest property movie-wise here is Archer and Armstrong Mm -hmm. because it's significantly different from things we've seen in the movies and yet it's very cinematic. But the thing that I think may be hurting Valiant and would certainly be a challenge for the movies to overcome. Although, oddly enough, it's probably what the Chinese investors really liked, <laughs> is that they're in the superhero business, mm-hmm. and it's really hard to crack into the superhero business right. if you're not the big two. Like, That's you're right. better off doing almost anything but a superhero mm-hmm. if it's not the big two. Right. Well, we don't even know what comes after superheroes, since, uh, you know, Pixar the superheroes are pretty much where it's at in the movie business right now, so... <laughs> Yeah. You know, Disney, Disney, Uber Alice, man. Um, I actually was talking to a group of fans, and one of them said, well, not necessarily movie, comic fans, but fans, and one of them said, I'm glad that Disney bought Marvel, because now I can like Marvel, because I only like Disney. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah. So, you know what, as I like to say... You know, the that's not my Aquaman faction. We'll never be happy. So, uh, with anything but their Aquaman and you know, go go yeah. go go cuddle up with your Aquaman if you want. True. But the thing is when people say that's not my Batman mm-hmm. and instead you're like, Here is Batman Light, I swear you'll like it also, it's got a different name. Um, you're gonna have an uphill battle marketing that one. Right, right, right. Well, anyway, definitely more to come on that. More uh, now, to come. Moving on to our uh, complicated outrage controversy of the week. Uh, there was a webcomic called, I'm probably mispronouncing it, Mahu Shonen Breakfast Club yes. by two creators, one from New Zealand, one from America. And uh, they started to put it up on Tumblr and got some blowback about... Uh, the comic fetishizing Japanese culture and also incorrect use of kanji and uh, being in inappropriate uh, um, white gaze and, you know, serious accusations, definitely. That should be taken very seriously. And then they kind of fumbled the fumbled their social media response to it in a way and kind of got a little sulky about it and then that got even bigger and basically they just said, that's it. You know, we can't do it because it would be we don't want to hurt people and we're hurting people by doing this comic, so let's not do it. And um, 
I don't know. I think it just left a big question mark over everybody's head. Well, I, I can see why they decided to back out. They've only invested 15 pages into this idea. Apparently, they had done a lot more of it than 15 pages. That was just what they put printed. That was only what, what they, they had put so up far put had up, yes. Okay. But anyway. But, I'm you sorry. know, they, they hadn't, and hopefully hadn't done too much. They hadn't posted too much yet. They may have just felt like the entire internet was against them, and they might not have wanted to be that comic Mm -hmm. you know the comic of those insensitive people who kept doing it after we told them they were bad people um and they might have just wanted to put their work into something that didn't have a giant pr debacle on its back yes that's true i mean they had a lot of supporters as well yeah it was definitely very controversial but they might not have wanted to be attached to something controversial Well, that's true i mean i felt i i myself after reading all of the criticism against the comic uh, no one has ever really said what it was that was wrong about it, except that it was possibly, possibly, uh, cultural appropriation, which is bad. We know that. And, uh, but I, I don't know. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's funny. Even some of the people who supported their decision to pull the comic were like, oh, you know, it's actually kind of awkwardly written, but, uh, you know, but that's fine. But, but then it's it's by people who aren't Japanese and set in Japan, and that is not very good. I'm like, I I don't know. I I just I'm I, like, you know what? Maybe it wasn't even the best comic. I mean, <laughs> I, I think maybe part of it is that people have gotten a little hair trigger on the subject because there's a certain amount of brainless and badly thought out Japan worship. On the part of certain parts of fan culture. Right. That is true. And I can see that if you are of Asian origin, you might get tired of it after a while to the point where you're just like, oh, God, not another comic by white people set in Japan. Um, And so even if that particular comic hasn't done anything bad yet, you just go into the old patterns of god not another one oh mega tokyo (laughs) mega tokyo well you know there's there's certainly the i've i've heard it i've seen it the phenomenon of well-meaning uh white fanboys being like i totally want an asian girlfriend (laughs) uh they can read me manga um and so, you know, I can see where, you know, it's like, well, if you're going to Japan, what do you want to watch? People are like, Memoirs of a Geisha. And everybody <laughs> who, like, knows anything about Japanese culture is like, no. Um, and so I, I can see that people feel like the genuine love that fans have for Japan can just lead to... A messy, awkward right. place if they don't bother to do right. the research. Now, there is a term, weeaboo. Yeah. What does weeaboo mean? A, a weeaboo <laughs> is a fan who loves Japan very much but doesn't know much about Japan, uh-huh. but thinks they know a lot about Japan and will repeat the same four words of Japanese that they know on a regular basis and, um, you know, generally make fools of themselves in the way of young fans. <laughs> right. If, generally speaking, I think they're fairly harmless, but I can see how they are a common and occasionally irritating breed of fan. Right, right, right. Well, you know, 
But, I mean, God knows there are enough irritating breeds of fan out there. There certainly are. I, I mean, I think there's a lot of uh, aspects of this. And, you know, our own Debbie Oki, uh heroically uh, captured them in a Storify that you could find on her Storify page where, I, I, you know, the, the conversation went on to talk about about uh, really the validity of the whole concept of non Japanese, not just non-Asian. I was about to say non-Asian, but that's not even it either. Non-Japanese creators, are they even capable of doing manga? Is what they do manga? And, you know, the subject of Felipe Smith was brought up as, you know, some people did not know of his background and assumed he was another, uh, you know, white guy doing comics set in Japan. But, you know, in actuality, he's an African-American guy who lives in Japan and does comics sometimes set in Japan. Is that more legit? I don't know. <laughs> well, I think, let's put it this way. I think it's completely legitimate for anyone to write a comic set anywhere as that. I mean, it, it, right. the individual comic itself may be horrible, but the concept that you should write a comic set somewhere is not inherently problematic. But I can see why people might want the label manga to mean something other than just this is a comic book and it looks vaguely like comic books that are from Japan. I can see that people, given that manga are comics and comics are, you know, there's a big graphic fiction umbrella under which manga and American comics and Bande Dessinée and all of them fall together. I can see that people might feel the same way about uh, an American comic that looks a bit like manga being called manga Mm -hmm. that, you know, a French person might, might feel about someone calling a comic made for an American audience with vaguely French-looking drawings, Bande Dessinée, they'd be like, what? That's not what it is. So I can see that maybe it might be legitimate to use manga as a label for comics created and published by the Japanese manga publishing culture. Yeah. Regardless of the birth of the person making it. Right. And I I think Matt Thorne, who is a professor who teaches manga in Japan, actually had a whole post on her blog that was about, um, you know, she took a lot more, a pretty hardcore stance in saying that she didn't think that anyone who wasn't Japanese could be called a mangaka because it's just so damn hard to get to do this. And, you know, it's brutal. I mean, the hours to put out the the Tankabon and, you know, the serialized is very trying and I, I think she was kind of trying to point out that you know it's not it's not actually an honorific in Japan but it definitely refers to a certain lifestyle as well so you know I think we're we're on a slippery slope or a, an area a very a slippery slope that's set on a huge gray area yeah <laughs> yeah I mean I, I think- we, but I mean, just when you talk about people dealing with cultures that that aren't their own and obviously we should be a lot more sensitive to them right I mean I think it's legitimate to be influenced by other cultures. But I think sometimes because of labeling issues, people just want to make it clear where something really comes from right. and not be like, this is just like those things from Japan, right. even though I did all my research right. on Wikipedia. But, you know, I have to say, I also understand, like, you know, don't don't give these easy labels. I mean, one of the people who's been doing some of the best manga-style comics in English is uh, Svetlana Chemakova, who is not American. She's from Russia. She lives in Canada. She's a Russo-Canadian. And, uh, you know, she does really excellent comics that are... Yeah, they are excellent comics yes. that are heavily manga-influenced. Yeah. And, and I, you could argue about whether that's manga or not, 
but at the end of the day, they're awesome comics. Yeah, uh, you know, I think when young filmmakers are so excited about a movie and then they sit down and they, they for some reason, make a shot-by-shot recreation of their favorite movie, like some kids did with Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, when you're a young creator, you become so enthusiastic about the thing that inspires you that sometimes you want to slavishly copy it. And I mean, I think that's part of the creation Learning process, process too. Part of the learning process. And, I, you know, I think we should make some some allowances for that so uh anyway i think it's pretty sure that the creators of mang amaho's shonen breakfast club learned many lessons from this and hopefully some of the observers some of the writers you know uh had teachable moments learning learning moments um well and i think another aspect of this that we're not talking about is that this comic was published on tumblr and tumblr uh for all we spend a lot of time on it and i love tumblr and it has a lot of good points some of its good points are also the things that make it tricky um it is full of a lot of very idealistic young people who have very strong opinions and frankly for all it doesn't seem like a social media sometimes it seems just like a place you stick pictures it is a social media and if you're going to publish your work on social media i really feel like it it would make your life a lot easier to Think about some basic PR do's and don'ts. (laughs) I mean, to to anybody who's like, I'm going to publish my comic on Tumblr. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Now, now think about how you're going to interact with your readers. Yeah. And my answer would be maybe not much. Right. Or maybe a lot. Maybe, maybe maybe a lot, but carefully. Um, Like reblogging fan art. A plus. <laughs> Getting into arguments with people who say they don't like your comic, not not so smart. Right. That's that's true. You know, that's sort of a basic social media do and don't. And, you know, I myself come from the Wild West of the Internet where, you know, just saying your name generally got an argument going. And, you know, that was sort of what you did on the Internet was argue about things with... Oh, yeah. Uh, endlessly. With endless, endless, endless threads. Oh, yes. And that, indeed, is what much of Tumblr is. But if you're trying to promote a product and not get bogged down in 27 million flame wars, you don't want to maybe get involved in that aspect. That is true. That is true. Well, you know what? Uh, people people like to argue on the Internet. They do. They, they do. A lot more than they do in real life or on the phone or in any other medium. Very interesting. Um, well, speaking of manga, uh, our own Debayoki also storified her recent trip to judging the International Manga Translation uh, Fair. I'm, I'm not sure it really was a fair, but anyway, it was a contest to see who had translated the best manga, and uh, she put up some numbers that were very interesting. Kate, did you? Uh, yes, let me just pull them up. Uh, you compared Debayoki to the Charles Dickens of <laughs> Storify. Yes. She's a storyteller. Yes. Um, so she's got some very interesting numbers. Um, Tankabon sales. Uh, no, Tankabon are the collections. Let's get our terminology straight here. Yes, Tankabon are collections. As opposed to manga magazine sales went down 50% oh. over the last 15 years. <sighs> Ouch. Which is painful, although arguably maybe the internet is taking the place of the magazine. Uh, but Tankabon scales look steady on the surface, although two times as many individual titles per year were, pu- were published. Two times as many? 
two times as many. Right. Wow. Okay. Well, that's a little bit like what's going on in France, actually, where the complaint that I hear constantly is that there are too many titles. And hearing sort of that in the United States as well. Well, uh, but arguably, um, it may be that each title is just selling less and that more titles at least give the diehard fans more to buy. Like, you can you can look at it as hard to tell um whereas the uh u.s market has been a little rockier right that's right um and also uh you know just to bear in mind that the japanese market is so much huger than ours and also you know manga's been on a little bit of a comeback i think of late oh, yeah. uh, certainly led by attack uh, attack on titan, titan. here and uh, so it's kind of stabilized a little bit. But, um, you know, where are the readers going? Where are they coming from? What are they doing? Um, well, they're not going down now. It, but, um, in fact, the U.S. market is growing. But, um, according to Deb Aoki and what she said from this presentation, um, Japanese sales still outperform U.S. sales of manga by 10 to 1. Right, right, right. Um, so their markets, for all they're a much smaller country, their market is much, much well, larger. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's been super well established there for a yeah. very long time. So, um, you know, I think they're still trying to, uh, you know, dealing with, with this whole thing. And, you know, obviously their uh, slow adaptation of digital probably is... Does not help. It Does hasn't help. helped. I mean, I mean, we're saying that sitting here. It's easy for us to say that sitting here. But, but uh, you know, there's uh, been a lot, a lot, a lot of resistance to, to getting onto digital platforms there. And, I think uh, if anyone can say that, it's us because we've been watching the digital market and comics very closely and we've seen how the american publishers drag their feet at first but once they jumped in it really brought in a lot of money right and um japan has just taken a lot longer um picked some more eccentric business models that were maybe not as well divine for the american market yeah we've certainly talked about a lot of fits and starts that they've had here yeah that you know, if you're looking for money from the American market, especially from the American geek market, like, digital is your friend. Right. That's right. And, um, you know, the kids are going to steal it anyway. I mean, that's just a fact. They are. They're going to figure out a way, except for some really, really good kids sitting over there that people are making, their friends are making fun of them. But, so. the, but the thing is that when you don't make it digitally available, you're giving the good kids no way to buy it. That's right. That's true. Even if people, you know, want to do it. And, and, you know, that's what's comicsology. I mean, we went through this here in America. I mean, we've talked about this in the podcast constantly, how there was so much digital this, uh, digital distrust uh, from retailers, from publishers, from creators, from everybody. And, you know, comicsology slowly wormed their way. And the it industry. worked out okay. It did. It, it worked out fine. We're in a golden age of comics. And, you know, and actually of reading. And, uh, you know, I, I just got a story that ran a Publishers Weekly today where it talked about how publishing uh, was up overall last year. Uh, but kids' publishing revenues were up 40%. Now... I don't know if that's titles. I don't know if it's just because parents desperately wanted their children to read and went out and bought, you know, giant $100 editions of Harry Potter. I mean, I don't know what it was, but 20%. I mean, I thought kids didn't even like to read or hold books anymore. Ha. I thought that was so... Ha. Well, it may include digital sales, too. They said that digital sales were only up about 1%. So, oh, yeah. Interesting. So, it is very interesting. I, I actually should have read these numbers more before I trumpeted them, but uh, 
I don't even know. I, I can't even interpret what that's all about. But uh, definitely worthy of being interpreted. Maybe better product uh, as far as kids are concerned. Well, there is. There's a lot of, it's a very hot market right now. The YA kids market is huge right now. And comics are a big part of it. You know, they yeah. were also, we, we don't break them out. but the, Wimpy the, kid. Yeah. Wimpy kid. But you kid. know, I, if I could segue, uh, you know, Brian Hibbs, uh, owner of Comics Experience, a comic shop in San Francisco. Every year he goes on Comic Book Resources and he is leaked uh, the book scan numbers, which are not supposed to be released, but he gets them and he puts them up and he analyzes them. And so he put up uh, the top 750 best-selling titles in for 2014 in the graphic novel. He added a few that were not included in the graphic novel uh, section, including Hyperbole and a Half uh, by Ali Brosh, a book we've talked about a few times here. Yes. And uh, what he came away with was all I can say is women and children first. 12 out of 20 are aimed at kids or tweens. Nine of the 20 are works by female creators. The revolution has already happened. It's just out in the bookstores. And I mean, hey, we've been saying this <laughs> every time we sit down here. But it, it just the, amazes me how many people keep forgetting that women are half the species. Yeah, but I mean, the, the and that kids love comics. And the, kids love comics. The number one book on BookScan, which doesn't measure the entire uh audience the entire sales was uh sisters by Raina Telgemeier with 176,000 copies sold next was tales from a not so fabulous life uh which is a you know now I'm blanking I do believe it's a big Nate book by Lincoln Paris uh 150,000 copies then smile hyperbole and a half and drama uh smile and drama both by Raina Telgemeier so Raina Telgemeier had a very good year three out of five of the top five three out of the top five books were by Raina Talmeyer, I keep saying it, but she is our YA author. Also on there, Star Wars Jedi Academy books by Jeffrey Brown, Dork Diaries, uh, Roz Chast, uh, Walking Dead, uh, Attack on Titan, Persepolis, Walking Dead, uh, Big Nate again, and Amulet, and Saga, Saga. And that's your top 20. But, you know, this is uh, a list that isn't very superhero centric at all and um you know you can go see this whole list at um at cbr uh in the tilting with windmills column by brian hibbs and anyone who's interested in comic sales i urge to uh to peruse these numbers make your own reports and uh think about what it's telling us about who is buying comics in bookstores and you know i don't know what that 20 percent revenue increase totally represented but i think that probably kids comic sales are reflected in that growth yeah no question so uh kate oh uh, do you okay. got some briefs for we us do indeed week? have briefs now heidi one of them specifically uh you were involved in now last regular news week we talked about the Dwayne mcduffie awards heidi was one of the judges heidi who won Take it away. Uh, oh, it was uh, Nyla Magruder uh, for her webcomic, MFK, uh, which is a beautiful webcomic about a... It's a, it's another YA title. It's a set in a fantasy world about a girl who is trying to scatter her mother's ashes. And uh, on her journey, she has adventures. Kind of a classic setup there. Uh, Magruder is a, a trained animator, artist. Uh, her Her work has this beautiful kind of... Uh, I'd say it's Disney meets Finder kind of look, really. I mean, it's great. It's uh, We were all so thrilled. I mean, I'm not allowed to talk about the judging, but let's just say uh, I couldn't be happier that Nala won, and she just seems like such a talented person, and, and she really, um, you know, there's a, so many great people out there. There's so much great work being done, and uh, 
you know, at the end of the day, that's what I like best is talking about the good stuff <laughs> by people I never heard of before. <laughs> uh, speaking of people you have heard of before, the Smithsonian is doing an online uh, superhero course mm. called The Rise of Superheroes and Their Impact on Pop Culture. But the professors are Michael Oslan and Stan Lee. Right. Oh, well, now, learn from the man. Yes. Now, Stan Lee has indeed attached his name to some questionable properties over the years, but this is playing to his strengths, which is to say telling uh, interesting stories about the good old days. It's going to be covering such topics as um, the beginning of superheroes in 1938, the Senate trials of the 1950s, and, you know, all kinds of highlights of superhero pop culture history in between in this five-week course that starts in May. And there is a quote-unquote minimum fee if you want to officially take the course and be graded. But if you just want to watch the lectures, that's free. Right. Very good. So for people who want to learn from the man. Yes. You know, you there may just be some <laughs> Marvel story from Stan that you haven't heard yet. In which but don't case, count on it. <laughs> well, it depends on how many Marvel stories from Stan you've heard. Uh, to be frank, I haven't heard any. So this should be new. Um, speaking of new and unexpected from creators... Uh, Ross Campbell, the comic artist, um, put out an announcement saying that she was, in fact, in the midst of transitioning and would like to be known by her new name, Sophie Campbell. And unfortunately, will not be traveling uh, in the midst of this transition to conventions because she feels that... um, Dealing with airport security will be uncomfortable for her for a while. Right, right. Well, uh, you know, congrats to Sophie. Uh, you know, we loved her as Ross. <laughs> <laughs> and we love her as well, Sophie. We love her as Sophie, you know. Uh, I've been, honestly, uh, as Ross Campbell, so many great books came out. Uh, Wet Moon and a um, bunch of mixed titles. So, yeah. Hey, uh, congratulations, Sophie. Yeah, and surprisingly little uh, horrific comic filth has come out at this announcement. So A-plus comic industry, keep it up. Uh, And speaking of A-plus comic industry, one more heartening little bit of news. John Lewis, Congressman John Lewis of um, civil rights era fame, uh, was on The Daily Show, the only comic creator bringing his comic on Daily Show ever. That's right, yeah. And he was presenting March... That's right. And uh, actually, uh, it was the 50th anniversary of the march uh, in Selma over the uh, Edward Pettus Bridge, which uh, the first issue is much concerned with. The first volume, I should say. And uh, so John Stewart gave the whole show over to talking to John Lewis. And along the way, he held up uh, copies of March. So, um, you know. By the I'm, way, there's a second volume, people. Yeah, so, well, he held up both. He had both. Uh, but, you know, uh, of course, congratulations to Congressman Lewis and, you know, his life of achievement, as we've talked about many times. And, hey, listen, along the way, civil rights are, are you know, of course, the most important thing. But, uh, oh, a really cool comic also got plugged in a really cool way. So that's, the, you know, congratulations to, to Top Shelf, now owned by IDW. Um, oh, you know, I have one little brief that I wanted to mention for um, 
New Yorkers, if you happen to be in New York in the next month or so, and you happen to want to see probably the most wide-ranging display of comics art that you will ever have the chance to see, I must, must, must urge you to go to the Society of Illustrators. For the first time, the entire four stories of the Society of Illustrators on East 63rd Street is devoted to comics art. On the really? First, yes. On the first two floors, they have a retrospective of the alternative cartoonists of the alt newspapers of the 90s, and it's stunning, absolutely amazing. It goes on from Charles Burns, Chris Ware, Matt Groening, Lyndon Barry, uh, you know, these giants of the, the movement, uh, right up to the ones who are still hanging in there doing it, like uh, Tony Millionaire and um, uh, Tom Tomorrow and Ruben Balling and Keith Knight. And uh, it's uh, a stunning, stunning show that really gives a context for the first time. It's really groundbreaking. Uh, it's curated by uh, Warren Bernard of Small Press Expo and Bill Cardinalopoulos, uh, who is Bill. Really, Bill is really, uh, I've never been to one of his shows that I didn't really come out with my head spinning full of ideas. He is such a good curator, and together these guys have put together an amazing show. Must see. But that's not all, folks. On the second floor, there's more. There's more. On the second floor is a display of art from the Little Nemo uh, wow. book that uh, the Locust Moon folks put out. And uh, Bill Sienkiewicz, um, Paul Pope. I mean, this art is stunning. It is absolutely a state-of-the-art uh, statement on where comics are right now with range of contributors doing it in a style that is uh, just cut loose. You know, obviously inspired by Little Nemo, but it's, it's really breathtaking. And finally, on the fourth floor in the... Uh, dining room is display of Craig Yo's art from his holdings, which includes two pages of Little Nemo, uh, Jack Kirby, Steve Ditko, uh, wow. everyone, you name it. I mean, Craig, you, buddy, you got really good taste. I mean, I'm sure you got a lot of this art before it was even valuable, but uh, it's just absolutely breathtaking. Okay, now I have to go. Right. It's not only that he has these pieces, he's got good pieces. So as you roam around, uh, you know, you can go see the exhibit on the first two floors, check out the Little Nemo display, uh, go to the dining room, grab some food there, you know, make a lunch reservation, have a drink. Uh, the food and drink at the Society is excellent. Uh, again, if you love comics, please go. This is literally, I've been to a lot of comics art shows. I don't think I've ever seen quite this much variety in such a, you know, in a compact space. Wow. All right. All right. Well, well, you know what? Oh, while you're planning your trip to the Society of Illustrators, Kate and I will be enjoying our life and, you know, hoping that Calvin is having a good time, dreaming of the time that we ourselves can go on vacation. And, uh, you know, until Calvin comes back, I guess there'll be more to come.